Okay, so we're in Colossians. And um, so far in chapter one, we've had the start, which is Paul's greeting, standard greeting uh, to the church there in Colossae. Uh, Then he gave a few words of commendation and encouragement to the church. And then last week, we started the prayer that he prayed for them right out of the starting gate. And now as we get into verse 15 here, the main topic, the main content, body of material, as it were, Paul launches into the main topic in this book, which is his defense of the lordship of Jesus. What we call Christology, it's the doctrine of Christ. Remember, going back a bit, that the primary issue into which Paul was writing this letter was that there was a growing tide of false teaching about who Jesus was, about where he came from, and about his relationship with God. And so to set the scene here, let's read from verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now in a bit, we're going to look at at eight things that we learn from Jesus in this passage. First of all, to ask the question, I think it's reasonably obvious, why is this such an important topic? Well, number one, first and foremost, because we need to know who Jesus is. And we need to know what he did. You know, this is the rock upon which we stand. Frankly, it's the rock upon which everything we believe in stands. So it's so crucial that those beliefs are rock and not sand. The second reason this is important is is that there are strong challenges to the deity of Christ in all the world's main religions. And thirdly, there are subtle challenges to the deity of Christ in the numerous supposedly Christian cults and sects that you may have come across or heard of. Before we dive into that in particular, I want to start with a premise. And the premise is that there is a demonic agenda in play. There was a demonic agenda in play back in the first century that Paul is writing into. And there is a demonic agenda that we are facing on a daily basis. That is that the enemy is desperate to discredit Jesus. I wonder why. 
you know, and if we I, I, I summarize all of this massive topic in about 30 seconds, we've talked in the past couple of weeks of the assault on absolute truth. The question, what can you justifiably and boldly believe anyway? Remember, Jesus said, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So first of all, we have this assault on, on, on the, the idea that anything can be absolute truth. Secondly, we have, we have this sort of individualistic individualism, which is that everyone is entitled to their own belief system, bless you, however bizarre or however contradictory. Believe you me, if you've been to India, my word. And of course, that then kind of leads into what we have today, really. I'm calling it the cult of tolerance, which is what right do you have to assert that your personal truth is superior to any other? Kind of gets you scratching your head. So it's either true or it's not. We can't all be right. Which brings us back to this, this agenda that, that Satan is desperate to discredit Jesus. And so he's been chipping away since Resurrection Day. He's been agitating a, a rebellion against God and godliness. And he's been leading people away from John 14, 6, leading people away from truth. Jesus' statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Why is he doing that? Why is there this subtle, insidious campaign going on? Well, because amongst other things, he wants to get people to doubt the, doubt the narrative, first and foremost. Secondly, he wants to, he wants to drill holes in, in key theology. Things like the virgin birth, things like miracles, things like the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the reason he's trying to break all that down is because that implies then that Jesus is not even qualified to act as saviour. And another thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to redefine sin, trying to get us to turn morality on its head in order to get people to dismiss their own need for a personal saviour. Because if you don't need a personal saviour, why do you need Jesus? And of course, ultimately, he's trying to get people to turn against Jesus as their enemy. And think about new atheist, new, new atheist books like God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. He's trying to turn God into the bad guy. That's rich. And of course, sadly, the enemies had much success in this campaign, which I know I've just summarized really quickly. I mean, after all, what are the most widely used swear words? You know, there's, right now there's an intense secular humanist agenda tugging people away from Jesus. Most of the major world religions, as we'll see in a minute, Jesus is considered respectable, but he isn't God and he isn't Lord. So if, if back in the first century and here in the 21st century, if the lordship and deity of Christ is what's at stake. What do the other faiths say about Jesus? My first draft of this notes was thorough, detailed, would have taken quite a bit of time, so I took mercy on you, and I'm just going to give you the quick headlines this morning. What does Islam say about Jesus? Quite a few things, actually. 
Jesus is described as one of many prophets and certainly one who is to be revered. But again, he is not God and he is not Lord. And again, I said he's going to chip away at enemies, going to chip away at crucifixion and resurrection. They either deny that Jesus was crucified at all or say that he simply died on the cross and that was that. Hinduism and Buddhism, other huge world religions, what do they say? Well, both of those faiths come in, come in many forms with complex and divergent beliefs, if you've been to India. And so it's actually quite difficult to isolate a unified set of beliefs that they hold about Jesus. In a pretty simplistic summary for Hindus, Jesus is largely considered to have been a holy man, a wise guru or teacher, maybe even one of their many, many, many gods. Buddhists, Buddhists in the West generally view Jesus as an enlightened man and as a wise teacher. I'm told that the current Dalai Lama is, is a fan because Jesus teaches all about kindness and compassion and love and forgiveness and all that kind of thing. But of course, in, in neither Hinduism nor Buddhism is Jesus central to or the source of human salvation. Fourth of the major world faiths is Judaism. And in Judaism, Jesus is seen either as an extremist false messiah or a good but martyred Jewish rabbi or, frankly, is completely disregarded. And, of course, Orthodox Jews are still waiting for their Messiah to come. What about the, the two main, I, I call them quasi-Christian cults or sects? I'm thinking about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever had JWs or Mormons knocking on your front door? So I'm going to tell you just an amusing little story that will make some of you smile. So on Wednesday at the AGN, there was a little bit of banter going on between Murray and Simon about living in the same street. Okay, I'll give it away. It's old school mead. All right. Now there's a story, sorry. There's a story that goes um, kind of relevant. Um, one day, a, a few years ago, a pair of Mormons were knocking on, on doors along Old School Mead. And several times as they went, uh, worked their way around, they were greeted with something like this, lovely to see you, but no thanks because we're Christians and we go to the barn. You know, by the time they got to Wendy Webb's house, now Wendy Webb is as gentle and as softly spoken as you can get, but inside there's a real faith-filled firecracker of a lady. And by the time they'd left Wendy's house, they were heard, they shrugging and forlornly saying, goodness, there are an awful lot of you about, aren't there? So I'm not sure whether they've been back to old school mead since then, actually. So Mormons, and if you've ever had Mormons or JWs at the door, Mormons have a very well-trained, very carefully rehearsed spiel, and their opening claims about Jesus are quite convincing, actually. They sound very much like traditional Orthodox Christian beliefs. But dig a little bit deeper, and major doctrinal differences soon appear. For example, and this is a very short summary, though his mother was indeed Mary, the Mormon Jesus, Jesus was conceived through a physical sex act with God, 
making him actually God's biological son. And he's actually the spiritual brother of the devil. They reckon that Jesus was married. They say that sometime after resurrection, Jesus visited America, where he taught and performed miracles. No comment, no comment. Got lots of American friends. And finally, significantly, they do believe Jesus died on the cross. They even believe he was raised from the dead. But that in itself is not sufficient for salvation. Salvation still needs in certain ways to be earned. Jehovah's Witnesses, for Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not God. He is a lesser and separate spirit being. And they claim that, that he never thought of himself as God, nor claimed to be God. You've got to distort your Bible to draw that conclusion. Now, before he lived on the earth, uh, Jesus was the archangel Michael. Uh, when he came to earth, he was a man, not, not God, he was a man who lived a perfect life. And after dying on a stake, A-K-E, not E-A-K, that'd be a way to go. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit. Sorry, Barry, that's bad, wasn't it? He was resurrected as a spirit, but his body was destroyed. He gave, uh, he gave his human life as a sacrifice to make salvation possible, but that also requires association with God's religion, or God's organization, which of course is the, the Jehovah's Witness religion, and it re requires obedience to its rules. What's the point in sharing all that in five minutes? Well, the point is there are a large number of divergent views about Jesus, most of which differ greatly from what we believe as Bible-believing Christians. And, and in Paul's Colossian context, there's, there's this similar model of philosophy's thoughts and religions going on. They've got the ancient Greco-Roman mythology. There's, there's a lot of Jewish legalism. There, there is Christianity, but there's quite a bit of paganism. And in Colossae, there's also this, this angelic cult that was local to that area. So into that pluralism, plus the rise of this Gnostic teaching in Asia Minor, Paul made a series of strong and definitive statements about Jesus. What did he say? Here's my eight things. Number one, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I'm going to go through these in a second. Number two, he was the firstborn over all creation. It describes him as the creator in verse 16, as preeminent in verse 17. In verse 18, he's the head of the body. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And finally, he's the fullness of God. Before we dive into those, just, just a quick pause. Some of this is a little bit detailed theology, perhaps a tiny bit chewy. I've tried to make it as palatable as possible. We will use ketchup. But, you know, we need to stop this morning to marvel at who Jesus is, at what he did, and what that means to us. Quite frankly, the only response to this is worship and awe. So, so let what follows 
in the next few minutes, feed your mind, but let it also encourage your heart because Jesus is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of all. Okay, ready? Fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to go through these quick. Number one, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, NIV, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Greek word image, the word, the word icon, it is used in classic Greek literature of the sun reflecting off a pool of water. In other words, what Paul is saying here, uh, metaphorically, is that Christ perfectly mirrors God. Remember the little conversation between Philip and Jesus? Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. John 14, verse 8, just after verse 6. Of course, there's a huge amount of conjecture out there wondering what God is like. Many people, I think, make the mistake of of measuring God or imagining God drawn out of of the conclusions of their own experience. Or dare I say, observing Christians in action. Or or perhaps the conclusions they draw are, are, are what they really want God to be like, which usually means a recreation in their own icon image. But Paul says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know the heart of God, look at what moved Jesus. If you want to know what he'd do in certain situations, look at the actions of Jesus. And if you want to know God's agenda, look at what mattered to Jesus. That was number one. Number two, he's described as the firstborn over all creation. Now, we need to talk about this word firstborn. Firstborn, um, certainly in Jewish literature, doesn't necessarily mean first in rank or, or the birth order of the things God created. And the reason I say this is because that would contradict other scripture. For example, John 1 Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if we are trying to suggest that God, that Jesus was born, and as in created by God, that contradicts that verse. So this expression, firstborn, which you're probably familiar with, actually signifies the exalted status of the Son of God. So again, in in ancient culture, the firstborn of a family held special honour. That they had within that family a position of leadership, that they they received a double portion of the father's inheritance. And so what Paul is saying here is is that Jesus, as the son of God, enjoys this special position, this special exalted status, this honour as the firstborn over all creation. Because then number number three, he describes Christ as the creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. What Paul does here is he settles all doubt 
by describing Jesus as the creator of all things. And of course, the, the, false, create, the false teachers were very confused about creation and where Jesus fit, fit in all of that. And in fact, the, 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 the world's major false religions have some very bizarre explanations of creation. But we can deduce four things from here. Number one, verse 15, he existed before creation. It tells us in verse, the beginning of verse 16 that he created all things. The second half of verse 16 says that all things exist for him. Verse 17 actually says that he holds all things together. In other words, all things depend upon their creator, not just for their initial creation, but also for their continuing existence. Two other seminal verses from two different authors, John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 2, In these days he, that's God, has spoken to us by his Son, that is Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Three things, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Secondly, he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. And thirdly, he upholds the universe by the, the rhema of his dunamis, the word of his power. Now, folks, this is definitive. This is unambiguous. And any other versions of Jesus are a counterfeit or a misrepresentation because truly he is God and truly he is Lord and truly he is the creator of all. Okay, moving on. Number four is, it describes Christ as the preeminent one. Uh, ESV, this is verse 17. He is before all things. Verse 18 says that in everything he might be preeminent. He is before all things. You look at the word before, it's the Greek word pro, which means above, and it means ahead, and it means before. In other words, Christ is preeminent. He is above all, he is ahead of all, and he was before all. In other words, and this takes us back to, verse, to the first um, message in this series where we looked at what this was all about, this letter. In other words, Christ is supreme. Christ is superior and surpassing and sovereign. He is absolute and incomparable. He is boundless and peerless. And Paul is saying here to the Gnostics, you know, no, forget the angels. Forget the, the enlightened, exalted, false teachers. Christ is preeminent. In other words, no power or authority, no wisdom or philosophy, no teacher or teaching can trump the power and authority of Christ. 
So the message out of this is that Jesus must be first in everything. He should be first in our nation. He should be first in our government. He should be first in our churches, first in our worship. He should be first in our doctrine. And he should be first in our lives and first in our decisions and first in our priorities. Which leads nicely to number five, which is verse 18 again. Christ is described as the head of the body. Familiar usage for us as, as good church attending Christians. We understand that Christ is the head of the church. Now in Greek usage, the, the word head meant source and origin as well as leader and ruler. I don't think this is a particularly complicated message, but as head, he is the origin. He's the founder of the church. As head, he is the source. that Everything starts with him and flows from him. And of course, as head, he is the leader that the church submits to Christ in all things. Strong message, we are to defer to Christ. We are to follow him and learn from him and to imitate him and to obey him and to totally surrender to Christ, who is the head of the body. Okay, rattling through these. Number six, Christ the beginning, verse 18. The statement here is, is not just that Christ was in the beginning or that he was present at the beginning, Jesus is the beginning. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Revelation 22 verse 13, I am the omega, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. So Christ is eternal. He is pre-existing. He is both the origin and the originator, as well as being the alpha and the first. Nearly there. Number seven, Christ, the firstborn from among the dead. Commentator Warren Wiersbe said this, Paul did not say that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead because he was not. There were a couple of people raised from the dead in the Old Testament. But he is the most important, that firstborn word, again, meaning exalted status. He is the most important of all who have been raised from the dead, for without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for others. Then he goes on to say, it seems odd that, that Paul used the word born in connection with death. But the two concepts seem to be opposed to each other. I love this line, but the tomb was a womb from which Christ came forth in victory. For Acts 2.24, death could not hold him down. Revelation 1 verse 5 describes Jesus as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. In 1 Corinthians 15.23, Jesus is called the firstfruits. And in Romans 8, 29, such a great chapter, he's described as the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, Jesus led the way into salvation, into deliverance, into eternity for all of us who call on his name. 
And because Jesus was the firstborn, we too can be born again into eternal life. I'm happy to settle for being the secondborn. How about you? Number eight, Christ, last one, Christ, the fullness of God. Verse 19, ESV, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the word for full here, we, we saw a derivative of it last week, is, is pleroma, which actually was a technical term in the vocabulary of the Gnostic false teachers. And this word pleroma, translated fullness, meant the total sum of all of the divine powers and attributes. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, what Paul is saying to those false teachers, those Gnostics, what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers, what Paul would say to any of those people in all those different religions swirling around the world, what he would say to you is there is nothing lacking. There is nothing deficient or inferior in the person of Christ. He is the fullness of God. He is the total sum of all of the divine powers and attributes. Jesus is not some lesser God as some religions view him. You don't need another advocate or another mediator. You don't need something else or someone else to complete your salvation because Christ is enough. And that statement leads into the last section, verses 20 to 23. And that talks about, about Christ's act of perfect reconciliation. And the, the Gnostics were, were dissatisfied with what they saw as, as the rude simplicity of Christianity and decided they needed to add something to it. And for them, salvation was to be found in knowledge, in enlightenment. But Paul confirmed here that it was to be found in Christ's act of reconciliation and forgiveness. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. We were once alienated. That, that means estranged. It means, it means enemies. It means, it means we were once hostile to God, but now we've been reconciled. To reconcile is to bring two estranged parties together, taking them from hostility into friendship. I want you to note the language is careful. In verse 20, it explains that God did the reconciling through him, through Christ. And that means we can take absolutely no credit. Again, a strong reminder to the Gnostics, we have no part in our own salvation. He's saying to them, no, it's not through works. It's not through knowledge. It's not through mysticism by the shed blood of Jesus. Christ is the firstborn. He is the beginning. He's the head. He's the source. He is the author and the finisher 
of our faith. Christ is the reconciler. He's the chasm closer. He's the bridge builder. He's the peace maker. And Jesus is sufficient. And he is supreme. And he is sovereign. And he is saviour. Amen. Amen. Okay, so just a bit of application, a little response to this. Just, just three things to take from this. Fairly straightforward, I think. Number one is Jesus must be first in everything. So we need to ask the question, don't we? When push comes to shove, who is on the throne of your life? If you're anything like me, there's a bit of a tussle going on. Most of the time, it's Jesus. Every now and again, I just try and kind of, I don't know, sit on his knee, maybe kind of push him out the way. Who is on the throne of your life? Who is leading, who is the leading influence in your decisions? Who are you trying to please or impress? Here's a telling question. Who in your relationship with God, who is serving whom? And then the response challenge that is, what can you do or what can you change or what can you rearrange to make sure that it is Jesus first? to make sure that he is the head, to make sure he is at the centre, to make sure it is him on the throne. Second takeaway for all of us is, again, reasonably straightforward, Jesus is the head of this church. It's not the denomination, not the trustees, definitely not the pastor, it's not you, not your personal agenda or wish lists. You know, you cannot put the cart before the horse. He gets the lead. He gets to decide. He gets to set the tone. He gets to determine our agenda. We, we need to wait on him. We need to surrender to him. We need to listen to and ultimately obey him. And you know what? If we get that right, all the other things will fall into place. And the third one, third takeaway is, you know, we, we are in the business of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, familiar passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's what we've just read. But he goes on to say, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, Jesus is the great reconciler. We should be about reconciliation too. So we must be careful to make sure that our doors are opened and not closed that we are warm and not cold. Let's make sure that we are advocates of the gospel, which after all is supposed to be good news. Let's make sure that Jesus is presented as an inviter, not a rejecter, that he is the friend of sinners and not their harshest critic. And the point is that we, we as, as Christians, we, we as the church should be positioned for reconciliation, position for gospel preaching. 
for bridge building, storm four tonight, for, for lost seeking, and for relationship restoring. You know what? This was Jesus' mandate. It must be ours too, because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Amen. I'm pretty much done. If the worship team would like to come forward, please, that would be great. How, how do we respond to this this morning? As I was praying this week, I felt three W's come into my mind. One is worship. The second one was wait. And the third one was whisper. As I said, I don't think you can read Colossians 1, 15 through 23 without falling on your knees. Worship has to be the natural response to finding out who Jesus really is. So the first thing we're going to do in response is we're going to, we're going to worship. The second thing is we're going, to, we're going to wait a bit. And the thought process here is that didn't we just say that he was the head? And that's that he gets to lead. So part of this response time is just waiting on him. We say, come on, you're the source. You're the origin. You're the leader. You're the ruler. What are you saying, Lord? And then the, first, the third W, I think I might do this one again. I like this. Worship, wait, whispers. What is he saying? And you've sat there beautifully, politely, thank you, listened to a multiplicity of words all about Jesus. The question is, what is the Holy Spirit whispering in your ears? What is he calling you to do? What is he showing you? So I'm going to invite you to stand while I put my ears in here and I transition smoothly to my other role. And uh, we're going to worship and we're going to wait a bit and we're going to listen for his whisper. And after that, when all that good stuff has happened, my good friend Murray is going to come and close and pray. And do